Michael Bennett, what's your motivation in bringing the story of Taina Pura to public attention? My motivation in wanting to um, to to tell the story of Taina and to tell the story of um, the events that have led to Taina Pura being in prison for for 20 years now um, come really. I mean, if I was to track it back. Uh, the moment where I knew that this was a story that I had to tell was from first seeing the 14 hours of interviews when Taina was was first interviewed by the police, um, which led to his conviction. Um, and watching those 14 hours of interviews is a harrowing experience. There's no other word for it. Um, you come away from it terribly sad and terribly angry. And I don't think there's any other way to, to view those tapes because you see a young kid, a naive 17-year-old child, and he is a child, you know, he is, um, he's walked into a police station and he's started to make a series of confessions that are, you know, that are going to end up with him being in prison for 20 years. And, and I think it's very hard for an objective person to watch it and to not have so many questions in your head. To, you know, time and again, the kid obviously has no idea what he's talking about. He's, um, he clearly, you know, all the evidence that he's giving to try and convince the police um, that he was somehow involved in this crime because that's what he was doing. He, he walked into that police station um, because he knew that there was a $20,000 reward on offer. And his big motivation going in there was to try and convince the police that he was involved. And, and you sit there watching this kid digging himself deeper and deeper into a hole and he's, he doesn't have a lawyer there representing him. He doesn't have um, anyone kind of, you know, assisting him to say, you know, stop, stop what you're doing. And um, so I guess I came out of, you know, watching those 14 hours of, of tapes. You know, I'm, I'm a reasonably sceptical person. You know, I don't sort of think, you know, everyone, there's a lot of people in prison and, you know, 99% of them will say, I didn't do it. And I think you've got to be take everything with a you know a very healthy pinch of salt. Um, but coming out of those 14 hours of watching those tapes, I had no question in my head that uh, this guy was innocent. He had nothing to do with the crime, and uh, you know something is profoundly wrong with our justice system that that he has gone through two trials, and these tapes have been seen by two juries, and he's been found guilty at two at two trials. And so that became my, I guess, my major motivation is, you know, you come out of that, you're terribly sad, you're terribly angry, and then you can sort of ask yourself, you know, well, what can I do about it? And I'm a filmmaker, you know, I'm a director, um, and what I can do about it is to try and present uh, what I saw, what upset me so deeply uh, to the public and to give them, a, you know, a glimpse of the person behind those headlines, you know, what people have known for the last 20 years about Tainapora is that he's a convicted murderer and convicted racist. And, um, you know, what I can do, I guess, is to try and use whatever skills I've got to uh, to show uh, the New Zealand public the story that they haven't heard and, um, you know, the, the, the evidence that a couple of juries have been shown but um, and they've reached their own conclusions for whatever whatever reason that might have been. But I think... You know, it's very important that the wider public uh, be shown the things and be be able to ask the same questions that, that I asked when I saw those interviews.
Okay, so how did you first learn about Tainapura? I first learned about Tainapura when I was contacted by a guy called Tim McKinnell, and Tim McKinnell is a former detective. He's now a private investigator. And uh, Tim called me up and said, you know, I'm, I'm working on this case. I'd, you know, I'd like to tell you a couple of things about it and let, let you see um, uh, some of the information that I've got. And if it's of interest to you to, you know, possibly pursue this as, an, as, a, as a story, then, then it'd be great to talk more. And the first actual uh, um, information about the case that I saw was when Tim showed me some of the interview tapes of, of Tainapura when he was first interviewed at the police station uh, back in 1993. And, um, yeah, I guess that was from that moment on, from, from the moment of actually seeing those interviews, uh, for me, that you know, it was quite clear to me that I needed to do something to um, to look at the case further. So what happened in 1993 was that the Susan Burdett murder was a year old. It was almost exactly a year since Susan Burdett had been um, brutally raped and murdered in, in her own house. Um, the case was pretty much becoming a cold case. The uh, The police really didn't have any leads. There was a $20,000 reward offered, and you, you kind of you have to think back to 1992. That, that was quite a big thing. You know, there was no; it was the only unsolved murder in New Zealand at that time. And and issuing a $20,000 reward sort of you know, is some indication that the police were pretty highly motivated to try and you know to solve this case. Tana Pora was arrested for you know minor charges. He was you know he, he was in the police station already. And he asked, um, he began this whole conversation with the question, you know, the $20,000 reward for that lady's murder, has, is it still available? And the police said, yes, do you know something about it? And the result of that was that um, he was questioned for the next five days. Uh, he was questioned at Monaco Police Station for the next five days, and uh, he was questioned without a lawyer present. Um, he was, of course, offered to have a lawyer present, but, you know, he, um, he turned that offer down, and he was questioned for five days, and, and as a result of that five days of questioning, uh, at the end he was arrested for rape and murder and aggravated robbery. So during that period of five days of questioning, he provided a series of statements, and the series of statements, Taina Pora was telling the police a story about his involvement in, in taking to two other individuals to Susan Burdett's house. And his story revolved around um, uh, the idea that the two people that he took to Susan Burdett's house had raped and murdered, murdered Susan Burdett. So he was the driver who took them there. Now, over those five days, uh, his story evolved, um, you know, as a result of, uh, of the questioning and as a result of various events, including the police taking him to Susan Burdett's house, um, the story evolved and became more detailed, and and also, you know, it has to be said that Tainer's story about his involvement in the crime also became more complicated. He, you know, from beginning to at the beginning, he was uh, he talked about himself as just being a driver who took these two individuals to the house. Eventually, he um, said that he went into the house and held held Susan Bird down, down while she was assaulted and killed. Um, so uh, this, what he said to the police over those five days uh, became a confession. Um, 
and uh, was eventually presented in court as, as his confession to being uh, involved in this murder. Um, you know, and, and it has to be said that, that early on, you know, I think a big thing that when you're watching the the documentary and when you're watching the interview tapes, the thing that you see very quickly is that at the start of those five days, he knows nothing about the crime. He um, he doesn't know. He describes Susan Burdett, the victim, as blonde and fat. She's actually she was actually a dark-haired woman. She was an athletic woman, uh, quite slender. Um, he doesn't. He can't describe her house. When the police ask him to take to take them to Susan Burdett's house, uh, he takes them to the house on to um, the top of a hill. He, he a number of times, four or five times in the interviews, he says, "Oh, she lived on top of a hill." We, we went to her house on top of the hill. Now, she doesn't live on top of the hill. She lives on a, a flat area. And there's, there's a terrible, you know, a, a, a very disturbing scene where the police go out with the video camera and so Tana's ostensibly taking them to where Susan Burdett's house is at the top of the hill. They get to the top of the hill and the police suggest to Tana that they're actually nowhere near where the crime took place. And perhaps if they go take him back down to the bottom of the hill and take him um, to somewhere closer to where the, the scene of the murder actually occurred, that would help him remember. So the police end up actually taking him to um, to the scene of the crime, standing him across the room from the house where Susan Burdett was actually murdered. And even then, Taylor is looking around, the police are asking him, you know, so you know, do you recognise anything? And the camera, you know... Thank goodness the video technology existed and they, the police were actually filming this whole event because it's all on camera. You, you see Tana looking around and he doesn't have a clue. He doesn't know where the house where he claims to have gone with two people and helped murder a woman. He's got no idea where the house is. So in one of the most disturbing parts of the documentary, you actually see the, the police officer who's driving the inquiry uh, Telling Tana, well, you know, it's clear that you don't actually recognise anything here. If I pointed to a house, would that help you? Um, and you know, this evidence was accepted in court, and, and you can, I guess, everyone can have their own opinion on on, on that. But I think you know that has to raise enormous questions in, in, in anybody's mind when they're watching it. Firstly, questions about does did he have anything to do with the crime? Was he anywhere near this place? And secondly, is that a, you know, the questions that were asked of Tana Pora and the way the questions were framed, you know, I think there just has to be questions asked about uh, about how his interrogation happened, really. So Tana was um, convicted, I think, in 1994 for, for rape and murder. Um, you know, what... He was convicted on the basis that the two people that he named were interviewed by the police and they were they were immediately cleared by DNA. Um, the two people that he named as being the um, individuals that he took to Susan Burdett's house and who he said murdered Susan Burdett were very quickly cleared as having nothing to do with the crime. But, you know, the net result was that um, they saw what Tana had said during those five days of interviews as a confession to being present at the crime and so he was... Um, he was prosecuted and he was convicted of murder um, and rape. So, so 1994, I believe, he, he began his prison sentence for murder and rape. And in 1996, 
um, there was a DNA link made between the DNA in Susan Burdett's house because, you know, she was she was raped, so there was DNA found inside her body. Um, when Tana Pora was first interviewed and convicted, there was no DNA match that had been made. Um, they didn't know whose DNA that, that was. And it um, certainly wasn't DNA to do with anyone who Tana Pora had named in his confession. So it was known that there was somebody out there, and the police were, I guess, actively trying to find out whose DNA that was. In 1996, the DNA was matched to Malcolm Rela, who is a serial rapist and um, who was eventually convicted of at least two dozen um, violent crimes against women. Um, so at that point, the police knew that you know the semen found inside Susan Burdett's body uh, categorically belonged to Malcolm Rela. So then it became a whole new sort of a ball game. Really, it was the the police, uh, of course, arrested Malcolm Rela. He was convicted of 24 crimes. He was convicted of Susan Burdett's rape. I think he went to two to two jury um, trials for the murder of Susan Burdett. And both of those murder trials, uh, the ju- neither jury could come to a conclusion that they couldn't come to a verdict about whether um, Malcolm Rowe had actually murdered Susan Burdett. And, you know, a number of commentators, including a very high-ranking police officer, um, have publicly sort of pointed to the fact that quite possibly a problem that the jury had um, in finding that Malcolm Rowe was guilty of Susan Burdett's murder was that there was already someone else in prison who was convicted of Susan Burdett's murder, i.e. Tana Pora. Um, so... At that point, you know, now that there, now that it had been proved that there was someone else present at the crime, that it was that Malcolm Rewa had raped Susan Burdett, um, the Court of Appeal uh, quashed Tana Pora's sentence, and he was he was temporarily released. He was a, a free man in about 1999, I think. And then I guess there was, you know, the judicial system had a couple of options, and one option was to say, you know, um, well. We've got a lone serial rapist in Malcolm Rua. He's been convicted of uh, of certainly one major part of the crime, the rape. Um, so what do we do now? We 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 have a look at Tana Pora's conviction and say, well, it doesn't really make sense because there's a a guy here who who is a lone serial rapist who you know in all of his other crimes only ever acts alone. Um, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe Tana Pora was not actually at this crime scene, and maybe. You know, maybe it's time to rethink. That was one option. The other option was to make a link, to try and find a link between Tana Pora and Malcolm Rua and to say, you know, to, to begin another um, another prosecution based on the idea that Tana Pora had gone to Susan Burdett's house with Malcolm Rua and that they had committed this rape and murder together. Um, now, you know, any number of commentators have have observed quite rightly that there's lots of problems with that as a theory. Um, one of the biggest problems is that Malcolm Brewer was third in charge of Highway 61, um, you know, New Zealand's biggest motorcycle gang. Tana Pora was connected to the Mongrel Mob. Mongrel Mob and Highway 61 are mortal enemies, and um, you know, any number of uh, people in the gang world would very quickly say that, you know, the chances of the Highway 61 person and a mongrel mob person um, passing each other on the street without taking to each other with machetes and baseball bats is very low. You know, so the, 
the idea that Malcolm, Pe- Malcolm Rewa and Tana Pora could ever have known each other, let alone decided to go on a crime spree together, is, in the assessment of many people, um, ridiculous. Um, however, the, the decision was made that, um, that the, there would be another conviction pursued uh, against Tana Pora, that he would be retried on the basis of the idea that he and Malcolm Rewa had done these crimes together. And so, so Tana Pura was again taken to trial in 2000. Um, many commentators uh, have said of that trial that you know it seemed quite obvious that um, there was huge issues with the, um, with the logic behind uh, even retrying Pura on, under, this, under this new idea that he worked with, with Malcolm Rewa. Um, the the trial, um, however, was was certainly pursued, um, and the uh, based on the idea that Malcolm Rewa and Tana Pora acted together, um, and I guess the prosecution evidence was certainly assisted in that case by a number of witnesses who testified that they had seen Malcolm Rewa and Tana Pora in each other's company. It should be, you know, I mean, it's really important to note, to note and, and you'll see it in the documentary, that um, those witnesses, um, you know, it's public knowledge that uh, rewards were paid to those witnesses as a result of them having made these statements in court. So, uh, so as a result of, of this next trial, when a link was made between Rewa and Tainapura, um, once again Tainapura was found guilty and in 2000 he was returned to jail and he's he's been in, in jail ever since he's had 16 i think it's 16 parole hearings um 16 times he's been turned down parole on parole most recently this last tuesday he was denied parole yet again he's he's just begun his 21st year in prison and you know one of the big problems now really is that he's in this quite crazy loop where um where if you maintain your innocence and you come up against it's the parole board, it's it's not a great look. You know, if you're the parole board, um, is quite likely to take an attitude that if you main, if you're maintaining your innocence, then you're not dealing with your guilt, um, which is entirely logical. And, you know, that just that's absolutely you know that makes total sense if if you're talking to a guilty person. The big problem is that you know what if you're actually innocent, um, and you know. It, Tainapura um, has maintained his innocence now for the last 21 years, and as a result, you know, one of the results of that is that he is uh, he reaches difficulty every time he goes to the parole board. And if he, if 10 years ago he'd changed the story and said, "Oh, you know what, you know, I, I was involved, and I'm sorry about it," and if he'd made up a story again like that, then you know, perhaps he would have come out of prison a long time ago. But um, to his immense credit, you know, he 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 knows that he is an innocent man, and he's maintaining his innocence, even though it is hurting him every time he comes up against the parole board. So, in making this documentary, Michael, what is it that you're hoping to achieve? In making the documentary, I mean, a big thing that I really that I really want to achieve is is to to give a view of Tana Pura's case both in terms of the facts, which are really important. You know, you, a man's in prison for a crime, um, for the crime of murder and rape, and there's a lot of issues with the evidence that was presented against him and the evidence that put him in prison. So, 
you know, to me, it's really important to um, to try and succinctly and articulately tell and show the audience those issues with the evidence. But there's also other things that I want to achieve with the documentary. A huge thing I want to do with the documentary is, is to look at the families that have been damaged by everything that's happened. You know, to look... Tana um, has a wonderful daughter. Um, she's an amazing young woman who's, um, you know... She hasn't had a father in her life for... for she's 22 years old now. Her, her, her dad went to prison when she was a two-year-old baby. She hasn't had her father in her life. She's she's since become a mum herself. Tana's a, a young, you know, he's still only 38. He's a young grandfather um, uh, who, you know, and I've spent a lot of time with both Chanel, Tana and um, the grandson. He's a, he's a wonderful grandfather. He he calls up Chanel every, um, every opportunity he possibly can. It's wonderful to see him interacting with his grandson you know he he's a great dad and a, a great grandfather um but i think you know to me it's 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 really important to show that you know this isn't just some guy in the headlines this is a person with a family a loving father and a loving grandfather and um you know a man with brothers and sisters that care about him and you know a family has been torn apart by what's happened so I think it's really important in the documentary, it's always been a real driving thing for me, is to, to, to show the story of the family that's been torn apart by this. Um, but also, you know, it's been very hard with this documentary because we haven't had permission to film Tainapura. He's, he's in Paramoremo, he remains in there, and uh, convictions have denied us um, the, you know, we're not allowed to, to, to film Tainapura, we're not allowed to interview him, you know, which is, which is sad in itself, you know, um, that he he's not able on camera to sort of to to speak for 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 himself. Um, but I guess one thing that I've tried very hard to do is is by finding people who actually know the person that Tainer is, is to give a picture of of what he is like. And I mean, to to give you a little picture of my impressions of Tainer when when I first met Tainer. Um, I'd seen the tapes. I, I, by then, I knew quite a bit about the case because I didn't want to meet Tana until I knew that I was quite committed to telling the story. I, I thought it would, it would be crap, obviously, if someone was to turn up and say, um, I'm really interested in making a doco and then walk away. Um, I think you know, he's had enough um, disappointments in his life that he didn't need that. So I needed to be fully committed before I met, before I met Tana. But I'll never forget... Um, the first day, the first time I've ever walked into a prison, and walking into Peremoremo and meeting Tana, and from everything that I'd seen, and from all that I'd known, got knowledge about the case up until then, you know, it made me furious. It, you know, it made me heartbroken and furious uh, about what had happened to this guy. And I assumed that I was going to go and meet somebody who was heartbroken and who was furious. I thought, you know, putting myself in his shoes, if I'd been in prison 20 years. Um, for something that I didn't do, I imagined that I would get up every morning and punch the wall. And um, so I was expecting to meet an angry young man, and I met the opposite. It was quite remarkable. He's he's um, philosophical. He's calmly spoken. He's he's gently spoken. He's referred to in prison. Other prisoners call him Cordal, um because he is a grandfather, but also because he has a certain kind of like calmness about him. And um, um, he's you know, I think it's 
probably not even too big a word to say that he's, he has a, a real sense of serenity about him. He's, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a writer and director, so I kind of, one of the things that you have to do in this job is to look for the clues. And, and my radar has always been up, I guess, because, you know, I've always wanted to sort of, you know, see that moment where, you know, is, have I overestimated? Have I, am I, you know, is, is there something about Tainer that I'm, I'm missing? And, and I can honestly say that, you know, in the, in the, in the time that I've known Tainer, I've never heard him raise his voice. I've never heard him, I've never seen him, you know, um, angry or, and that, that astonished me that somebody, this could have happened to, to two decades of someone's life, and you could come out at the end of that as, as you know, a person who, who, who you would describe as, as gentle and calm and thoughtful. And I think it's, a, it's an immense tribute to Tainer that he is like that, that, you know, he has survived what's happened to him and he hasn't become bitter, he hasn't become an angry man. Um, the, one, an amazing thing that happened very early on when I was first going to visit Tainer in Paremoremo was that we were talking at the table, um, and I, I, I think we were talking about he, he plays rugby league. He's a very good, he's the most valuable player, MVP of Paremoremo rugby league team. He's a great player, um, and he, uh, I, I think we were talking about one of his league games, and, and I remember vividly a, a little a ladybird landed on the table right next to Tainer's hand, and I was thinking, you know, um, the ladybird was sort of uh, walking around in little circles and was. Yeah, um, and I thought, you know, most people, uh, if they've been annoyed by a little bug, the natural reaction is to sort of get, you know, squash it with your thumb. And um, but I remember vividly that Tana kept on talking about the rugby league game without even pausing. He let the ladybird. He put his finger down next to the ladybird. The ladybird crawled up onto his finger, and then he just gave it a little nudge, and the ladybird went flying away and flew flew its way out of the prison. And um, and that was, you know, I, I thought that was a really, that was the kind of special moment that I wish, if I'd had permission to have a camera inside the prison, I wish I'd had the camera on for that moment because it's those kind of moments that actually do tell you a lot about what a person is really like. So, yeah, I guess that's one of the big goals for my documentary. I haven't been, I haven't been allowed to film Tainapura, but what I've wanted to do was to, to try and build a portrait of the man as, I believe he is, and the only way to do that is through other people's uh, re reflections upon Tainan. And um, and people have been very generous because I think uh, the, the people that you know, when when you meet Tainapura, he he definitely has a an effect on people. He and, and the surprise that I felt when I met him and didn't find an angry man. I think everyone everyone that I know that has met him is equally surprised and equally moved by the fact that a guy who's been so hard done by um, has come, has managed to survive and has managed to have, you know, a, a serenity or a, a, you know, a peacefulness uh, about him that you wouldn't expect. You know, I guess another big thing for me in wanting to tell this story is, is the more I dig into the story, the more that I kind of see that, that at the heart of so many things in the story is poverty. Um, you know, it's how the story began. You know, Tana, Tana walked into that police station as a 17-year-old father of a two-year-old girl. He was desperately trying to support his kid by, you know, 
licking cars and, and doing um, uh, doing various um, duties for the gangs. He was not doing so well. Uh, he was trying to find a way to 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 care for his child, and um, he made a very bad decision. He tried to, you know, he, he walked into that police station very aware of the $20,000 award on offer, and the series of events that happened after that, I think, can be, you know, linked straight back to that moment and that decision, which came out of poverty, which came out of a kid who'd been raised with a mum who died when he was very young, when he, I think when Taylor was eight, a father who was, for all intents and purposes, absent after that, you know, no no strong parental support whatsoever. Um, and this kid was, you know, um, along with his brothers and sisters, moved from house to house and relation to relation with no, you know, really strong, ongoing, solid support. So there's that aspect of the poverty, but there's also of how poverty plays a part in this story. But there's another aspect too, which is, you know, family members... Um, you know, it's on public record that family members, Taylor's family members, some family members testified against testified against him um, at his trials, and it's also on public record that uh, reward money was given for testimony. Um, and to me, again, this is you know, family members under normal circumstances don't do that. You know, this is people acting out of desperation or people whose, I guess, you know, it's, I guess it's, this can only be my opinion and what I, how I look at it, but I don't think that, um, that, that family members would behave like that because they are, you know, naturally want to behave like that. I think it comes from a certain amount of brutalisation um, that happens when it's, you're having not the best, you know, getting by is not that easy. So, I think there's, there's. I think when you look at any crime story, you can look at it as a very simple black and white story that's about good people and bad people. Um, I think there's, you know, if you dig, if you scratch below the surface of um, of pretty much any um, crime or any situation like this, then I think the the, the issues and the uh, um, the pressures that are leading to these situations are a lot more complex. And, you know, I think poverty in New Zealand is uh, an issue that is uh, going to become huger and huger in the public mind, and I think that this is yet another example of, of the, the role that poverty can play in function in crime. And another aspect of the story that is really important in the documentary is that, you know, this story as well as you know, as well as the tragedy, it does. It is a story about heroes, um, and there are some heroes in this story very much. The Tim McKinnell, who is a former policeman, now private investigator. Three years ago, four years ago, he contacted Tainapore and said, "Look, you know, when I was a policeman, I heard stories about your case. I don't know anything about it. Can I just look at your case file?" Um, Tim had no connection to Tana. All he knew was that there were, was talk that there was something wrong. And the moment that Tim read Tana's case file and saw that, in his opinion, a a great injustice had happened, um, he, in essence, you know, he committed uh, his professional life for the next two years to to really pursuing this um, case. And um, so he's brought on a number of people. Jonathan Krebs, uh, a, a very, very well-regarded lawyer. Anna Sanderford, um, one of New Zealand's top 
forensic um, scientist, um, a number of uh, people who, none of them have been paid for what they should be paid by any means. You know, Tim's worked for a long time for no money, um, and Jonathan's worked pro bono, Anna's worked pro bono. But, you know, they are all so, uh, I guess, overwhelmed by what they see as uh, the injustices that happened that they are giving their time and, uh, and have together constructed an appeal, um, which is going to be uh, lodged later this year, uh, an appeal for pejorative, prerogative mercy to the Governor-General, um, which is basically Tainer's last ditch. You know, he's had two, he's had two court trials, and uh, you don't really get another one. Um, and this is the only really legal remedy now is to um, to, to appeal to the Governor General. So um, I guess you know, for me, I really wanted in the documentary to to get behind the scenes of, of the building of that appeal and uh, to show uh, these people who are you know who are committing um, a lot of uh, an amazing amount of energy and an amazing amount of their own time um, to putting together this appeal because of uh, something that they believe so deeply in. Ko Nongataha Toku Nonga, Ko Tiarawa Toku Waka, Ko Tiarawa Toku Iwi, Ko Nati Pikia, Ko Nati Fikoe Oku Hapu, Ko Michael Bennett Ahoe.